would be untrue You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, light my fire Come on, baby, light my fire Try to set the night on fire The time to hesitate is through The time to wallow in the mire Try now we can only lose And our love become a funeral pyre Come on baby light my fire Come on baby light my fire Try to set the night on fire I am so happy to be a Christian this morning. And I have a feeling like I'm not the only one who feels that way. You know what I love most about being a Christian? What I love the absolute most about being a Christian is that every single day we get to live this very strange counterculture lifestyle that is completely and radically different than the way the rest of society is operating by. There's just something about that every single day that, that just excites me. That if we want to, we can actually unleash God's kingdom, the very kingdom of heaven, in the offices where we go, in our homes, on Facebook, at the carnival, I mean, wherever we go. If we wish to, we can bring the kingdom of heaven and show this world that there really is a God in heaven. And yet, as we've seen all of these weeks leading up to this morning, there are so many things within us that are working to prevent that from ever happening. We've been referring to them in this series as the giants of the modern-day church, that as Israel had their giants, so we also have our giants. And the giant that we will see this morning is one of the most common and prevalent giants that there are, and that is the giant of discouragement. Really, as this old song says, we should never be discouraged. And yet, to be discouraged is to be human. You know, one of the very first things that I learned in the church ever in my entire life, I was about three or four years old at the time. And one of the very first things that I heard and ever learned in the church was actually a song. And we would sing this song called, I'm going to let my light shine. You know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine all around the neighborhood, right? And yet, really the part that I remember most about that song, it's the part that, that us kids got the most excited about. We were looking forward to that moment in the song when we would say, don't let Satan, what? It out. I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan blow that light out because I'm going to let that light shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. And when you're four years old, I mean, that's a foregone conclusion. We were excited about that because, I mean, in our minds, well, of course we're not going to let that devil blow our, our light out. 
But just as Jesus said, we're going to have that light displayed as a city on a hill. We will not cover that light, but we will proudly display that light so that everybody can see that light. And yet it seems like the older that we become and the longer that we live in this world, it seems like our life, how life itself, how it becomes us dealing with the fact that our lamp has, has yet again gone out. I've discovered that it's not always Satan's fault. Sometimes life itself has a way of, of snuffing that, that, that flame out within our hearts. I mean, to be discouraged is to be a human being. But what ultimately is important is that we don't remain discouraged. That we can be discouraged, but we just cannot afford to remain discouraged for the rest of our lives. So this morning, I would like to go to the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah in time has become my favorite book in all of Scripture. And that's because of, of just how human he is and how relatable he is to us. Jeremiah, many times over in this book, reaches the point and even surpasses the point of absolute discouragement. And discouragement really has a way of causing our very lives and our prayers to resemble a soliloquy in a drama. Where whenever there is a soliloquy, everything else going on in the play, it freezes to a halt. And just one character comes to the very edge of the stage where he speaks alone in the dark. As we read our text in chapter 20 of Jeremiah, it's in our minds as if all of the lights on the stage dim out. Maybe a very sad song begins to play in the distance. And beginning in verse 7, we have Jeremiah's soliloquy. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me, and, I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everybody mocks me. For each time that I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction, because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and in derision all day long. As we can see, Jeremiah is, is very discouraged. He, Jeremiah is disillusioned with ministry and he's disillusioned with God himself. He says that, God, you have deceived me. How when, when it was understood by Jeremiah that God would be going with him everywhere where he would act as his mouthpiece, Jeremiah excitedly rushed into this work. And yet, as Jeremiah has experienced, this is not exactly the kind of work that is going to, to cause the hearts of people to, um, go, to really go aflutter. But rather, it's been just the opposite of that. Jeremiah also, by the way, he has not sacrificed little. Jeremiah has given God the absolute prime of his life, his childhood, the prime of his life. He has sacrificed a wife because God said that if you do this work for me, you are not to take a wife. And Jeremiah accepted those terms. Jeremiah has sacrificed his very comfort in doing this day after day after day. It has cost him his reputation amongst the people because 
where chapter 20 starts is a priest who is living in that time. Here's Jeremiah prophesying. And he says, throw him into prison. And they beat him severely. And then after he has been beaten in a severe way, he is then placed in this very humiliating stock that goes through his neck. And the stock, it's very important because this stock is at, at the gate of Benjamin. And the gate of Benjamin is right by the temple of God. And so what this means is that the very people who Jeremiah has been prophesying to, who have been jeering him, now every time that they either go into the temple or come out of the temple, these people are shrieking with laughter in the face of Jeremiah. They are jeering him. And they are, are using God's own words in order to jeer him. You see, doing the work of a prophet has made Jeremiah a social outcast, a pariah. Doing God's work as God's mouthpiece has made Jeremiah the village idiot of Jerusalem. Where I imagine everybody sees Jeremiah coming, he's about to speak, everybody says, Oh, 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 everybody quiet down. This guy's about to prophesy again. He's going to tell us how captivity is coming our way if we don't change our ways. Ooh. And day and night, this is what, what is coming Jeremiah's way. I mean, do you know what it feels like to be laughed at, to be ridiculed, to be ostracized for doing a good work for God? This is one of the most dehumanizing things that there is. Where for 42 years of his life, Jeremiah is warning the people and he's warning the people, captivity is coming, violence and destruction is coming our way, violence and captivity is coming our way, but for 42 years, nobody will listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah screams himself hoarse in the squares of the city, but nobody, I mean, he's speaking to a brick wall. You see, this is really important because a lack of converts is not always necessarily a, a reflection of the messengers. Sometimes it is a reflection of the godless culture in which one is living in. And this most certainly is, is the generation Jeremiah is living in. And yet a part of me thinks that it's not just Jeremiah, though. That if we're honest with ourselves as Christians we can just as easily become as discouraged as Jeremiah was here, only in the church. Where I think we can all remember that, that very special time in our lives where, where we had just come to a knowledge of the truth. Where we had fallen in love with Jesus for the very first time. Where we would sit in a worship service, I mean praising until the tears poured out of our eyes. Just how happy we were to be there. And yet other times and seasons of our life, we, really, I believe that, that all of us have come to a worship service before. Everybody else is praising God, but, but we can't even manage a sound, all because of how discouraged we are. The only thought in our minds is, I can't wait until this is over. We think, let's just get this over with, because I can't wait to get out that door. As the minister speaks, every one of us, I imagine, have thought, I wish that guy would just shut up because I do not want to be here this morning. That's a very human thing. Where I have experienced some discouragement as of late is when I arrive at churches, whether here or elsewhere, 
and I walk by empty classroom after empty classroom after empty classroom. Rooms that I've seen in pictures and heard in stories that, that once were, were overflowing and teeming with children and with laughter and with song, but, but now this morning they are eerie ghost towns of what once was that, that now is no more. And if you stand in there just long enough, you can almost hear the residual echoes of the voices of children singing. Don't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. I saw this old, our old um, church directory here, and I saw a picture, and it just brought the biggest smile to my face, how Apparently, in, in those days in the early 90s, I mean, there was not an empty seat in this house. And it made me smile because I remembered my hometown church about how I would be 12 years old leading prayer for the first time before over 800 people. And in those days, it seemed like every church was exactly like that, overflowing churches. And yet, that has discouraged me because I, I miss those days so much. And yet, you know what? It's not just Westchester. And it's not a reflection of you or of me or of anybody else, but I believe that it is a reflection of our changing culture, about how we are, are now very much in a post-Christian culture and society. We have this, this new younger generation, one that, by the way, I am a, a very active part of, that is very discouraged by Christianity itself in America. It's become very westernized, it seems like. And I have met many people my age in this city, and they, are, they, they really have a wrong concept of what Christianity is all about. They think that Christians are people who hate certain groups of people. You see, it's our job to, to really take that perception and to burn that perception to the ground by the way that we, we live out of love for our God. I've spent time with non-Christians in this city who are my age. And I can tell you that they are looking desperately for community. A place where they can belong. A place where they can have true life and acceptance. And the great tragedy is, is that they are searching for this, but they're not finding it in so many churches. Our job is to change that perception. Because I believe that even in a post-Christian culture where atheism is completely dominating my generation, I believe that we can experience the greatest renaissance that this nation has ever experienced within the church. I have friends in other cities who are my age who are experiencing all kinds of millennials coming into the faith. Once they see that how this thing called Christianity, it really is real. And that Jesus really is not who we thought that he was, but he is the love of the world. I believe the same exact thing can and will happen here. My generation has just had its fill of merely playing church. They want to actually embody the church. They have had their fill of, of wearing masks in a religious sense. They want the real thing. And it excites me so much that, that, I mean, we can do this here and that we are doing this already. We just have to not 
grow discouraged in our hearts as we do it. You see, because discouragement comes to all of us. And I just want to say that, that if our life is always sunshine and rainbows and lollipops 24-7, 365, brothers and sisters, that's not Christianity. Because the very life of a Christian, it, it welcomes, it brings in all kinds of, of strange and unusual and very uncommon pain and discomfort along the way. After all, we are walking in the footsteps of a man who's, who one of his names that we know him as is the man of sorrows. Christianity is going to cost us friends that we've had our entire lives. It's going to prevent us from becoming popular and having a strong reputation in certain places. But this is a pain that is well worth it, as we all know. Jeremiah is disillusioned with ministry and with God. That is true. And yet the reason why I love this book and this chapter so much is because even though he is momentarily disillusioned with God, as in God is not who I thought he was, even though he is standing in the dark as he offers God his soliloquy, in the very next verse, in verse 9, we see the lights suddenly bathe the stage. And now we hear happy music. It is prevailing over sad and ominous undertones. And now, all of a sudden, the stage is full of life. Because Jeremiah remembers. In verse 9, he remembers God. He says, but if I say that I will not remember him anymore, if I will not speak in this name anymore, then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it any longer. I believe that Jeremiah remembers that time when God said, Jeremiah, that before I even made you, before you were even born, I knew you. I formed you in your mother's womb. And just before Jeremiah says, God, I'm too young to accept this mission, God lays hold of his mouth and he says, Nonsense, Jeremiah. Do not say that, that I am a youth because I am with you every single place that you go. I wonder if Jeremiah looks back and he reminisces on that day when, when he fell in love with this word for the very first time. As he says in chapter 15 and verse 16 that, that your words had been found by me and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Because I have been called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. And yet it seems like all of that is a distant memory now for Jeremiah. But what does he say? He says, but if I say in my heart that I will remember this name no more, your name and your very word, what does it do? He says that it is a fire that is consuming my very being. And it's a fire that I cannot keep in or endure any longer, he says. You see, I just love this because when it comes to discouragement, Jesus has breathed life and light into our souls. But sometimes in our life, the only thing that we can feel is death 
and darkness. Our God has brought heaven into our worlds, but there are seasons in our life where those very worlds of ours feel like the lowest rung of hell. And yet I love verse 9, though. Because of verse 9, we see that when we're there, even there, there is a flame that is blazing in the night. And that flame is the very name and the very essence and the very character of God within us. As I read this, I don't just think about Jeremiah. I don't just think about Scripture. But when I read this, I am reminded of the prophet Jim Morrison from The Doors, who writes this song called Light My Fire. And the lyrics of the song say that the, he says that the time to hesitate is through. There's no time to wallow in the mire. And then the chorus says, light my fire, light my fire, come and set the night on fire. And this is what God is doing for Jeremiah right now. This is what God does for us. His light blazes and it burns and it sets the night on fire. We think about Moses standing at the bush as it burns, but somehow, even though it is engulfed, it is not, not reduced to ashes. Jeremiah is saying, really, in essence, that, that I have a fire just like this. I've got the fire of God, and it is burning in my soul at this very moment. We see the Israelites wandering into the wilderness. And yet, when it becomes night, we have this beautiful scene of, of this cloudy, fiery pillar. And it is God leading his people throughout their night. Jeremiah is saying that that very pillar of God that led the Israelites in the wilderness in the dark, that same exact pillar, it is in my bones, guiding me through my night. Last week we saw, the, last week we saw Elijah the prophet on, on Mount Carmel. He says, water that altar three times. And when Elijah calls for God to act, we see the fire of heaven coming down and incinerating even stones, even the dust of the earth, answering with heavenly fire. Here, Jeremiah is saying that the fire of the divine, the exact same fervency, that exact same flame that had consumed that altar of Baal, that fire of God is incinerating my heart right now. We think about King Nebuchadnezzar. He thought, he, had, he thought that he had the world's greatest fire, didn't he? Giving orders to, to make that furnace seven times hotter than it was before. It's so hot that even his own officers are being killed in the flames. And yet the only ones who did not, the only ones who went unsinged, though, were, were um, four figures who they saw in the flames. Jeremiah is saying that an even greater fire than that is burning and it is engulfing my very being right now. Last week we also saw a couple of men on the road to Emmaus, how they were very, very much discouraged and disillusioned that, that you know what, we, we were hoping that Jesus would be the Messiah, but he's dead now. But once it registers in their minds that, wait a minute, wait a minute, the person who we were walking to, being so discouraged with, that was Jesus. And can you remember what they said specifically? Where they said, remember how our hearts burned within us 
as Jesus spoke to us from the scriptures. My brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Jeremiah is speaking about. Those two men on the road to Emmaus, this is the very image of Jesus and the fire of God burning and guiding in their night. This is why the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12 that we are to offer God an acceptable worship service because our God is what? He is a consuming fire, this God of ours. He's the God who sets the night on fire. And yet, as discouragement goes for us, even though Jeremiah now is beginning to to have his joy and his confidence back in his God, once again, his lights dim on the stage. Those ominous tones, once again, are prevailing over the happy tones. Where he has this Wimbledon match in his own mind, where he just goes back and forth between spirit and flesh, between heaven and between hell and earth. He remembers there in verse 10 how really the reason why he's so discouraged is because even his own friends are now his fiercest of enemies. It seems as if it's Jeremiah against the entire world and he's standing all by himself. And then we see the lights come on again as as Jeremiah once again remembers God, but he's like, "Well, well, wait a minute. Even though I have lost all my friends, God is with me right now. And he starts dwelling on all of that heavenly light and positivity. But then as discouragement goes, once again, the lights dim. And only this time, though, we hear a dirge from a funeral playing faintly and ghostly, echoing off in the distance, where we see Jeremiah now lapsing into absolute despair and depression, where he says, down in verse 14, he says, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying that a baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. Verse 17, he says that, that I wish that I had just been, been killed at my birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb only to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? That's not really a sexy verse, is it? It's not the kind of thing that you might see on a meme or on a bumper sticker, is it? And yet I love it because it is real, it is raw, it is human, and it is honest. Well, Jeremiah's discouragement becomes even worse, as we know in this book. Chapter 38, for example, Jeremiah is cast into a cistern where Jeremiah literally toils away in the muck and in the mire. And not long after that, just as Jeremiah had had so prophesied for 42 years, his countrymen are conquered in 586 BC. They are led away into captivity. We see the book of Lamentations opening up with the ultimate dirge, with the ultimate soliloquy as Jeremiah sits in rust and in rubble, as the blood of his countrymen run red in the streets. He just looks at this once great city, Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, this city that once was so great is now reduced to a widow. 
This great city now is sitting so lonely out in the squares and in the city. You see, Jeremiah desperately wants a do-over in his life. And he wants a do-over in the terms of, I wish that I'd never even come into this world. It's so severe. But here's why this is my favorite book in the entire Bible. It's because even here, in this dark and hellish cistern that he has sunk into, even there the darkness does not win. Even there his God finds him and lifts him up out of that depravity and despondency and despair. And that's because of all places the book of Lamentations is the book which also brought us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. I mean, it's exactly what we read in Psalm 139. How if I ascend into the heavens, behold, you are there. And if I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, behold, you are even there as well. And even if the darkness, if I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, O Lord. Even the night is as bright as the day because darkness and light are identical to you. What is God doing in Psalm 139? He's setting the night on fire. What is God doing in Lamentations chapter 3? He's setting the night ablaze on fire. That's the God who we serve. As we bring this to an end this morning, I would like to quote a minister named Sean Andrews who, who offers five things that we learn from our soliloquies in the dark. What we learn first about our discouragement and more to the point by Jeremiah, is that we can never be in so desperate a place that God cannot find us. Secondly, we learn that we can never be so low that he cannot lift our souls in hope and in worship. Third is that even though there are giants that may loom over you and me, that there are no giants which loom over this God of ours. There are no problems that are too big for him to conquer on our behalf. Lesson number four is look around. God has us and our circumstances firmly in the palm of his hand. And the last lesson that we learn is that it's God who always has the last word. Always. You see, if we will be like Jeremiah, and invite God's fire to burn within our night and to set our night on fire. We will no longer walk these halls of ours and be imprisoned by our nostalgia about what once was that now is no more. We will no longer be enslaved to the good old days, but now our lives are going to become the good old now and the great and exciting brand new tomorrow rather than 
what once was. One last thought. On November 25th, 1963, when our president John F. Kennedy had been laid to rest at Arlington, the very last act in a public sense that his wife gave to this country was she had lit the everlasting flame at his gravesite. And for half a century, that, that flame, it had danced in the breeze. It had flickered and burned through wind and through rainstorms, through snow, through, through sleet and through hail. In the daytime, and especially, it burned throughout the night in Washington. But it reached the point where, where one day renovations needed to be made to that place and, and specifically to the everlasting flame. And as these renovations had been made, that, that flame momentarily had been snuffed out. But once those renovations had been made deep inside that memorial, that flame was rekindled. And that flame will burn throughout all the ages, ages until Jesus returns. Every time that we see that everlasting flame, that is Jeremiah. That is me. That is you. And if we have such a heart and a spirit in this church, that can be this church at Westchester. God has not commanded us to, to fill this auditorium to standing room only. If it does, I mean, praise God. But all that God wants us to do is to be faithful to his word and to love this community and to keep showing up. And if we will do that, he will take care of the rest. All we have to do is keep showing up and keep being faithful to this God and to this community of ours. You see, the time to hesitate is through. There's no time for the church to, to wallow in the mire any longer. But may we have a heart that cries out to our God, come and light our fire, this fire within us, and come and set the night on fire. Or as the Apostle Paul says so beautifully, Beloved, let us not lose heart in doing what is good. Because in due time, we will reap a harvest if we do not lose heart. Come on, baby,